Welcome to the 137th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Miles Cameron, author of the fantasy novel The Red Knight, the first book in the Trader Sun cycle. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Miles Cameron, author of the new fantasy novel, The Red Knight, published by Orbit. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. Well, uh, I know you're going to read something special for us, so you're going to to read um, a little bit of the beginning of uh, the second book in the series, which is called The Fail Sword. So if you if you could read that now, that would be great. Uh, sure, Jeff. First of all, let me just say, uh, you know, warning to all of you who are in the publishing business, you know that it's called The Fell Sword now, but by the time there's a title on the book, it could be called something different. Uh, that said, the chapter head says, 10 leagues north of Albuquerque, Sir John Crayford. Sir John was not dressed in armor. In fact, he lay on the bank of a small stream, dressed in hose so old that the knees had layers of patches and a coat he'd bought from a peasant farmer 10 years before. It was a nameless color a little lighter than the fur of a barn mouse and very warm in the summer sunlight. Rain had fallen in the night and there were drops of water caught in the streamside ferns and they caught fire in the rising sun like tiny magnificent jewels burning with hermetical fire against the early morning transparent black of the stream that rolled slowly by. In his right hand he had a rod four paces long and from it dangled a horsehair line half again as long and at the end was a hook with a tiny tuft of feathers. He moved cautiously like a man hunting deer or something worse. His eyes remained on the wonder of the water jewels caught in the ferns, and he watched them, his heart overflowing, for as long as the effect lasted, which was only a few dozen heartbeats. And then they became mere drops of water as the sun's inexorable rise changed the angle of light, and he moved over the low ridge at the edge of the stream, saw the rock that marked his favorite spot, and his wrist moved, as delicate as a sword cut and just as skilled and his fly sailed back over his head. He felt the tension as his line loaded, and he flicked his rod forward, and the line unrolled as if off a drum, and his fly settled on the still black water with the delicacy of a fairy harvesting souls. Even as he released the breath he hadn't known he was holding, a leviathan exploded from the deeps in a green and rainbow-colored explosion of power, seized its prey, and fled for the depths. Sir John stood straighter and lifted the tip of his rod, sinking his hook home. The trout resisted the tug and fled, and then leapt clear of the water. So John turned the fish over, trying to keep the fish from putting its full weight on the braided horsehair. He felt the weight of the fish and stepped to the right the way he would have if he had been fighting a deadlier adversary, taking the fish offline and turning it slightly so it couldn't get a firm purchase on the water with its fins. He got it on, he got it on its side and gave a pull, and in a moment he had the fish on the bank. In another, he pinned it with his left foot. And then he drew his rondel dagger and slammed the flat disc of the pommel into the back of the fish's head, killing it instantly. Whistling, he extracted the precious fish hook, the work of a master smith, and checked his horsehair line for splits or frays before drawing the knife from the strap of his pouch. He slit the trout to the gills, stripped its guts with his thumb, and tossed them back into the stream. Great. Well, if, if someone listening hasn't heard about The Red Knight yet, which is the first book in the series, how would you describe the novel? <clears throat> how would I describe The Red Knight? It's, it's 
a realization of something that might be an Arthurian world written with a little bit of knowledge of how the real Middle Ages worked. Great. Well, well, I know that fantasy literature is undergoing a huge renaissance. It has wide popular appeal and popular culture now with both the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies and now the HBO series of A Game of Thrones. And obviously, I just mentioned their visual. Um, but um, obviously, there are also best-selling novels as well. As a writer, what appeals to you about fantasy? Well, I've always loved fantasy because, in a way, it allows you to say anything you want. Uh, I'm a big fan of history, but the truth is that very few stories end happily in history. In fact, one of the one of the most remarkable things about history is it never ends at all. So today's triumph is often tomorrow's defeat. And it can be very interesting when one is writing history to write about a period where you know, if you know your history, that just over the horizon is heartbreak and horror. Fantasy allows you to both lighten and deepen those shades. The dark can be darker. The light can be lighter. Uh, and I, I confess, one of my very, one of the things that interests me more than anything else is, in fact, heroism. I've seen some in the real world, and I'm very interested in writing about it. And fantasy, to me, is heroic literature. Uh, lately, some people view it as anti-heroic literature, and sure, I, I can accept that. But um, it is our version of epic. Sure. Sure. Well, well, if I understand you're you're a historical reenactor, how, how has that influenced how you write about combat and and um, weaponry for the Red Knight? Or fly fishing, like I just had Sir John Craper exactly. do it. Exactly. Uh, so I, I wondered about that. Are you a fly fisherman? I, I love fly fishing. And uh, my dad, of all people, is one of the world's experts on medieval fishing. Uh, and um, and 18th century fishing and 19th century fishing. And uh, he and his friends spent a lot of time studying it. And years ago, we built all the medieval equipment, and it is great fun to fish in the Middle Ages. And I guess I'm going to use that as a sort of uh, living history allegory to say there's no substitute for actually doing these things. When you do them, writing about them becomes so much easier. I was astounded to find out how much fly fishing was like using a uh, two-handed sword in so many ways that I hope I brought out in that little passage, you know, that a skilled swordsman is probably very quickly going to become a skilled fisherman, uh, that it is all about hunting and killing, um, that, you know, the Middle Ages penchant for violence probably carried right over into the way in which they killed fish. <laughs> There's a million ways I can go with this, but uh, I do believe that you can write better about the past and at some level, all fantasy is really historical. And that's something I can riff on further if you want me to, to talk about it. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd be interested in hearing that. But at, at some level, we can we can understand the past better by trying to live it. And by the way, I'm not one of those sort of one of those people who believes that, oh yeah, you can get it all perfectly right. And we I know exactly how they lived in the Middle Ages. I don't. I'm a hobbyist, uh, you know guys who lived the life and wore armor every day and fought every day uh, were very different from me. I just try and get a taste of how these things work. Uh, and that taste, I hope, makes me a better writer. And why do I believe all fantasy is, is ultimately about history? Um, you know, 
in another interview, I probably shouldn't mention other interviews, but in another interview, I was recently asked if I used real person people as the basis for my characters. And I laughed and said, who else would I use as the basis for characters? I, I hope writers aren't making characters up without reference to real people, because it is by referencing real people that we act write accurately, I feel. Uh, and if you believe that, then all fantasy is history because history is the life experience of the human race, just like our memories are the life experience of our own lives. History is sort of all we've got to look back on and say, this is who we were. And it would be hard, awfully hard to write a fantasy novel with no historical reference. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use something really simple and say swords. Uh, every time I read a fantasy novel by anyone in which they discuss a sword, whether they know it or not, the writer is immediately referencing a whole set of historical tropes just by talking about what kind of sword we're using. If I say scimitar, you, Jeff, will immediately have a picture in your mind, a whole set of images that goes with the word scimitar. Am I right? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and if I say a cross-hilted sword, a two-handed sword, you have you sort of, oh, yes, that means that this guy is this and he's that. And all those cultural images, they, they all get come out of our experience of history. And that's why I don't mean to say that fantasy writers are bad or that they're all history writers. They're not. But most of the cultural reference we use, we're stuck with them. So if we describe a, a magic user, a hermeticist, as being in robes of silk, that has implications. Why is he wearing silk? What does that mean about him? You know, does he have stars embroidered in his silken robes? We're already off on a sort of Merlin path in this direction. I, I hope I'm making sense to you, but uh, we're stuck with a lot of cultural artifacts. Some of them are swords. All of them come from history. There it is. That's my two cents. Sure. sure. So, so given that, were, were there any specific fantasy tropes or even cliches that, that when you sat down to write The Red Knight that you wanted to treat differently in, in your own fiction? Uh, zillions. And... Uh, and some of them represent my sort of revulsion with some stuff that's out there. And I don't want to go into that too far because everyone writes different ways and I'm not against anybody. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say is that war is bad. Uh, war has profound effects on societies. And another thing I wanted to say is that uh, combat has a day-to-day -day cost. Uh, there's a reviewer who said, He'd never spent so much time reading about the minor aches and pains of wearing armor. Yeah, that there, there you go. That's one of those little ideas I wanted to get across that, you know, uh, your hips hurt and your muscles hurt. Getting on and off a horse in plate armor is, you know, a bit of an adventure all by itself, even for a highly trained person. So at that level, I wanted to get some stuff across. But I'll tell you, Jeff, at a, at a bigger macro level, one of the things, one of my life experiences has been to be able to observe some real life decision makers, a couple presidents of the United States, a prime minister of the UK, in crisis situations making decisions. And I, I really wanted to try and get across how I think decision makers in a fantasy environment would make life and death decisions, which let's just say might be a little different from how it was reflected in some other fiction. Sure, sure. 
Well, I, I know that you've published historical fiction under a different name. I, I was curious about the original path to publication for you. H have you always wanted to be a writer? And, and what was the process like for um, writing your first novel and, and eventually getting it published? Uh, Jeff, I'm going to take the liberty of answering this question backwards, which is to say, I always wanted to write fantasy, and that was not the way the path went. But it, was, <laughs> it wasn't is my first love. And, you know, if you had told me when I was 17 and started writing my first fantasy novel that I wouldn't get published as a fantasy author till I was 50, uh, I might have been deeply depressed. <laughs> so, uh, so I actually, uh, you know, I had a whole military career before I went anywhere near professional writing, but I've been writing pretty hard since I was a teenager. And uh, I would write if no one paid me. It's like another hobby. It's like sewing or martial arts. It's something I do every day, and I doubt I could stop uh, if the publishing industry collapsed tomorrow and no one cared. I'd probably write anyway. Um, and that said, uh, I wrote in the military a ton. Uh, I, I think the military is actually full of pretty good writers who aren't always recognized because mostly we're writing fact. Uh, and I wrote all kinds of stuff in the military, and at a page count, that I think most civilian writers would be staggered by. We used to write 40 to 50 pages a day in one of my jobs. Um, and this isn't fiction, of course. This is mostly sort of regurgitating of classified news articles. But there is an awful lot of writing there and just sort of getting the words down on paper. And that was a very, very good training process for me. Um, and then uh, I started writing thrillers, spy thrillers, uh, with my dad. And that's cheating, I know. And anybody out there who is, wants to be a writer is now rolling his or her eyes and saying, oh, nepotism. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, probably the easiest way into the writing business, folks. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Nepotism is your friend. Uh, <laughs> but I wrote thrillers, which I didn't particularly love. It's not a genre that I was wedded to, but, you know, we did okay at it. And then, yes, I wrote historical novels, and now I write fantasy novels. So... Here we are roughly 35 years after I started writing fantasy and I finally got one published. That's that's a great story. So so going back for a moment to to the one that you wrote when you were 17 years old. Um do you do you remember that? Was it was it I'm was still it publishable at the time? Uh, I doubt it, but I will tell you that almost every one of the characters in it is in the Red Knight world and you'll be meeting most of them towards the end of Fell Sword. And at the beginning of book three, which is called the Tournament of Fools. Great. Well, given your success to date, what, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Uh, this is like tough love, Jeff. My advice to aspiring writers is to go out and gain enough life experience to have something about which to write. Uh, that's it almost sounds cruel, but I don't think five days pass when somebody fairly young doesn't present me with a piece of writing and I read it and think, wow, this is good. Um, the world is full of people who can write. It's having something about which to write that gets you up the next level of the plateau. And I like a lot of people who aren't all that wildly popular anymore, like Ernest Hemingway and Alexander Dumas. But one thing that a lot of the writers I love from my youth have in common, and I'll use J.R.R. Tolkien as an example, is an incredible breadth of life experience. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that J.R.R. Tolkien was made by his horrible 
and traumatic experiences in the First World War. But I think to this very day, people resonate with the darkness of Middle Earth as well as the light. And I'll bet that contrast came out of his war experience. I'm just guessing. I, I, I don't know that for sure, but I have a, I have a feeling. Um, and I've always loved the foreword to The Lord of the Rings where he says, you know, I, it, this is not an allegory of the Second World War, but I'll admit that I never liked the new Miller um, when, when, you know, when the mill moved into to my father's town. And I think that that is sort of where we all live. We're all at some level writing about our life experience. I read all the books of the making of Middle Earth, all of Christopher Tolkien's, you know, extensive uh, series. I think there's 12 or 13 of them. I own them all. I learned a lot about writing from those books. And one of the things I learned from them is, wow, this Tolkien guy, he knew a lot, <laughs> like, he, uh, both academically and in terms of life experience. And I hate to say this because it's very tough love. But when I talk to young writers, I say, join the Peace Corps, join the military, go overseas, live in an, uncomfort in, in an uncomfortable environment and see the edgy part of the world. And then you'll have something to say or something maybe a little more profound to say. That's that's good advice. So do you have any specific writing rituals when you sit down to work each day? Uh, no, <laughs> there, there <laughs> it is. I, uh, all of that was knocked out of me in the military. Uh, okay. I've never been allowed to have a writing ritual. Ritual. Uh, I don't write well without coffee. Uh, somehow my my writing survived quitting smoking, you know, so uh, I I guess that that's good. And um, I write I feel I write better if I start immediately after taking my daughter to school in the morning and don't read my email or think about anything else. But I'm a parent and I live in the real world, so I don't get many of those days. And you know, I, I seem to manage to continue writing. So I'm going to say I'm pretty ritual free. Sure, sure. Well, what writers or books, either fiction or nonfiction, have you read in the past year or two that made an impression on you and that you would recommend? Wow. Uh, I just finished C.J. Sherry's latest in the Foreigner series called Protector. Mm -hmm. Um. I think it, I want to say it's book 16. I don't know that for sure. I have never in all my born days seen a series so long that never causes my interest to flag. It's sort of like alien soap opera. I, anyway, I, I love CJ Sherry's writing and I love the way she writes and I love the way she's decided to dissect the diplomatic process and, you know, a zillion other things. Um, I just finished, uh, before before C.J. Sherry, I just finished, I'm going to murder this name, A.G. Yoshikawa's uh, 1962 novel, historical novel about uh, Miyamoto Musashi of Japan. And that was pretty awesome uh, and somewhat Duma-esque uh, and, you know, really, really, really good reading. But uh, I'm a huge Stephen Erickson fan. Do you know Stephen Erickson? Yes, I, I do. Yeah, the, the Malazan Book of the F Fallen is probably, I mean, I can name you 8 billion inspirations for writing The Red Knight, but the Malazan Book of the Fallen helped get me off my butt to my editor to say, wow, I really want to write fantasy. I always wanted to write fantasy. I think that the as an overall achievement, the whole series, uh, one of my favorite things ever. Um, I, I was and am a huge Glenn Cook fan, 
And I think that the injection of some humor by people like Glenn Cook and Terry Pratchett into the fantasy world is the coolest thing since sliced bread. Um, shall I go on? <laughs> um, I, I think that's good. I think that's good. And, and um, uh, thanks for, for mentioning the Erickson books. I, I think I, I need to track them down and try to interview them for the podcast. But um, I've read those and, and agree. I think they're just amazing. You know, and I, I really want to meet him. He was a Canada Ranger. Uh, talk about getting life experience. You know, you can feel the cold water dripping down the back of your neck on every page of, of the Melazan Book of the Fallen. And I, I just, I think here is a guy who not only can write beautifully, but he's got the experience to make it real. Even when it's giant monsters and huge moments of magical usage, it's like he was there and that's what Tolkien can do. And to me, that's what the best guys and gals can do. It's like they were there just telling you about something they saw. Sure. Sure. So what are you working on now? Uh, I, I have to keep that very slightly classified. I'm okay. working on one of my historical series right now. In fact, I like many writers, I run two screens so I can do editing. So Jeff, I have you up on one screen and I have my other book up on the other screen uh, just just sitting, waiting till we're done so that I can go back to it. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll offer a clue just for fun and say, we're in Sparta. Okay, that sounds good. So so uh, maybe what we should do is when that's published is have you back on to talk about your historical fiction. And, and I'll what put you do. Hat and I'd love to talk to you about that. Great, great. So, well, again, we've been speaking with Miles Cameron, author of The Red Knight, the Red Knight is available in bookstores and online now, so grab a copy. Miles, thanks for doing the interview. Thank you, Jeff. It was a great pleasure. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.